comes from Romans uh, chapter three, starting in verse one. Then what advantage has the Jew? Well, what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. <clears throat> what if some were unfaithful? Does this faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true through everyone, were, though everyone were a liar as it is written, that you may be justified by your, in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together because uh, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom, the venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Let's pray. Uh, Father, this morning, as, as Ryan brings your word, I pray that you speak boldly through him. Um, as this text uh, is something that needs to be boldly said, Father. So thank you for my pastor. Thank you for my friend. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Mike. Y'all can be seated. Morning. It's good to be with you. Man, Paul really knows how to encourage you, doesn't he? Man, he just, he's got the gift of encouragement. Um, I kind of say that uh, jokingly, but I, I really, I really, I, honestly, even though those words that we just heard were really honest and truthful words, I do think that we can find great encouragement for that uh, uh, through those words. Um, so it's good to be back uh, in the saddle this week. As, as you know, um, we've had a just a challenging season as a church, and the Lord has met us in that season, and I'm really thankful for a team uh, that's able to shift and adjust, but it is good to be back in the book of Romans. So uh, how, did you, how did your Monday start this week? How did your week go? If somebody were to ask you how your week went, well, for me, since you guys are all asking me, um, after an amazing weekend getaway with my wife celebrating 15 years of marriage, um, yeah, it's amazing, it's amazing. Uh, I found myself in the dentist chair at 9 a.m. this Monday morning. You're getting a root canal, the dentist says to me last week. But she's like, you know, there's like, 
I think there's going to, she pulls up the x-ray and all the scans. She's like, see this nerve? See how the decay? And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and she's like explaining, explaining it to me for like an hour. She's like, it's so close to the nerve. I think we're going to have to take this out. And, and, I, and I'm, I'm, the whole time I'm like, I don't want a root canal because I've heard those stories. Some of those stories are your stories. Um, I've heard those stories. And I'm like, I don't want a root canal. I don't want a root canal. And so I'm hanging on to this glimmer of hope that I won't have to have a root canal once they start drilling on me. And so, um, you know, um, they start in on the work on Monday morning, a great way to start your week. And, uh, and I'm, I'm holding on to that. Re- oh my. This is, hey, this is what happens. This is how your staff team punishes you when you're vulnerable with them right here. This guy right here, hear that chuckle? That was him. That was him. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, okay, let's go. Um, so, so they're like saying, you know, there's less, she's like, honey, there's less than a 1% chance you're not going to have to have a root canal. And I'm like, so you're saying there's a chance, right? And I'm sitting under the chair and uh, on the chair and, and, you know, they've got this nitrous on me because I'm freaking out. And, uh, and, uh, and, 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 and then the dentist says to the dental assistant, she goes, look, this tooth is so bad. Go get the camera real quick. And I can like, I can kind of, and they're taking a picture of my tooth. They're like, he thought he didn't need a root canal. There's no life left in this tooth. And I'm thinking, well, it didn't hurt, you know. Uh, and it's so dead inside, and he thought he didn't need a root canal. And as I was in that chair in my pain, I thought, isn't this how we all uh, respond when we realize the brokenness of our own lives. We all try to avoid the truth about our human condition. We all try to act like we're not in decay. We think like I did, you know, my teeth don't hurt, they must still be alive. And yet the spiritual autopsy comes in that Paul gives us this week in Romans chapter 3 that basically says this, it's dead. There's just a shell around it that makes you think that it's alive, but it is dead. Today, in Romans chapter 3, it is about wrapping up the last several weeks of exploring our lostness, our spiritual decay as image bearers of God, so that we can learn how to be found and live whole in the rest of the book of Romans. So here's our big idea for today. Only those who really know what it's like to be lost, know how to live found. So what I want to explore today is what it means to be authentically lost. And I say that kind of a a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but the reality is is that uh, there is a danger uh, that we that sometimes we can act as if we don't know what it's like to really be lost. And we can we can kind of put on this front that yeah, we need Jesus, but functionally we don't really see how much he's rescued us from. So here's the the structure of Romans chapter 3. The the first part's kind of confusing. It's like this Q&A with Paul, right? He's like anticipating these objections. And then the second part is the summary of Romans chapter 1 verse 18 all the way through Romans chapter 3 verse 20 where he's talking about all of the bad news about us. So here's kind of the, the structures. There's four attempts to avoid ownership of sin. And then there's three devastating effects of our radically corrupt nature. So let's look into these four attempts uh, to avoid ownership of sin. And, and w- these are not exhaustive. Uh, they were uh, very, very much uh, culturally prevalent um, 
uh, ways that the Jews uh, in particular would try to avoid ownership of sin. And this is why Paul uses so much of the Old Testament as he shares this. But we have our own ways of avoiding ownership of sin. You know, with our children, it's really obvious, isn't it? But we have our own subtle ways of avoiding the ownership and our responsibility of, of our sin. It is, it is human nature to avoid the responsibility of our sin. And, and here's the interesting thing. I think only secure people in Jesus can take ownership of our sin. Confession of sin reveals solid footing for sinners. Only secure people have the courage to step out and functionally trust the grace of God in our relationships. So, um, so here's, here's how um, I want to frame these. I want to frame these in ways that are, are true to the text, yes, but culturally applicable for us today. So what are ways that we object to ownership of sin? Well, the first one is this. Why bother with church? It doesn't seem like church people have any advantage in the world. So here's what Paul says. He says, then what advantage has the Jew? Uh, or what value is circumcision? And he says, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So he's, he's anticipating this objection to folks that are avoiding their ownership of sin. And he's saying, what are the advantages of, of being uh, in proximity to God's people to, to, to have... Um, to, to be a part of the redemptive history of God's people, the, the Jewish people, the chosen people of God are for us, the church. What are the advantages? That we've been entrusted with the word of God, that there is an inherent uh, advantage that we have in this world because we know God through his word, friends. If you look back in the history of God's people, this hasn't always been the case. Um that there, there is a great reward in knowing God's word even when it's not alive in your heart. And, and for some of us, we really need to hear that today. Um, we need to hear that for our children that maybe are not walking with the Lord. We need to believe that God's word will not return void as Isaiah 55 says, that it always accomplishes its purpose. Isn't that really encouraging to us this morning? Right, that God's word is always working when it's on Display. Paul says this is a huge advantage to us in this journey of following God. I'm reminded of a, of a situation in Nehemiah chapter 8 where God's people had been in exile, and Nehemiah, the governor, comes back, and he's, he's on this mission to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, and Ezra the priest is with them. And in Nehemiah 8, Ezra, the walls have been rebuilt. Uh, the people of God are all there. They haven't heard his word in 70 years and Nehemiah, or Ezra opens the word of God and he begins to read it for hours on end. And what do the people do? Nehemiah 8 9 says this For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. These people hadn't heard God's word in decades. In fact, think about this the youngest in the community had never heard God's word before, never heard it. Friends, one of the most beautiful things that we can do as the people of God is to hold his word high and true. Even, even in the situations when we don't want to take ownership of our own sin, his word is working in our lives and it is working in the world. Some of you know what it's like to be in a community that doesn't hold the word of God high. It's painful. This is why some of you have left traditions that you've been a part of 
for years and years and years because they started slipping on the word of God. There is great effect in our lives when we hold high the word of God. Just to hear God speak through his word, friends, is such a gift, and we've been entrusted with that gift. That's the first thing that Paul says. He, he kind of goes back to that objection. The second one is this. Um, I know lots of hypocritical Christians. They're no different than me. Why should I take ownership of my sin, right? Why should I believe these things that Paul is saying? Romans 3, 3, and 4, he goes on to say this. He says, what if some of the people were unfaithful? Does, that, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means, Paul says, let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Some people are faithful to God because they're filled with faith that his word is true, and others are not. They're not faithful to God. And what they prove to be is liars about their own spiritual condition. But the argument here was that, you know, does this mean that God is not faithful because the people that claim to follow him are not faithful? And he says, no, 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 this is not the case. They prove themselves to be liars, not God. God does not change because of how people respond to his word. Our responses only serve to reveal how committed to fulfilling his promises that he really is. You see, friends, there's nothing special about believers. There's nothing special about me or you. Even sometimes I do think something's, you know, you, you know we're, we're tempted to think there's really something special about us. Oh, God, shucks, she chose me. So thankful, right? We, we think something is special about us, but really, there's nothing special about us. The only thing, as Deuteronomy 7 says, that's special about God's people is that God has set his love on us. That's what makes us special, for, for, the, for the friend that you know that is just on a runaway train of sin right now, your condition, apart from Jesus, is no different than theirs. The only difference is that God has made his spirit alive inside of you and given you faith to believe that God's word is true. None of us deserve this salvation. And Paul is, is, is saying that that doesn't change who God is when people don't believe his word. The third objection is, is this. Um, from Romans 3, 5, and 6, that God's punishment for sin is unloving and righteous and he can't be trusted. Now, this is one we hear a lot. How can God be a God of love when he is filled with wrath towards sinners, right? Well, Paul writes this right here. He says, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict this wrath on us? He says, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? So what he's saying here is that, that, God, that, that God is just um, to judge sinners. And, and every, really every world religion kind of agrees on that, that sinners deserve judgment. The difference is, um, is that not all world religions uh, show us how deeply depraved we are in our human condition. Every other world religion that doesn't uh, lead to the resurrection of Jesus, you know, every other world religion is all about dressing up the human condition. What the Bible is interested in is showing us the reality of the core of who we are apart from Jesus so that we will trust the gospel, that we will believe it. You see, God is all loving and he's all just because he both judges, friends, and he takes the judgment for us. See, that's the difference in Christianity for us. It's this amazing truth. That not only do we have to agree that God's going to judge the world for sin, every sin, you know, every, everybody's without excuse is what Romans 3 is talking about. 
But the good news is, is that he's the one that takes the judgment for us. And when we believe that by faith, there's great hope for us. Now, laying in the plane here on these objections that are kind of all over the place, uh, Romans 3, 7 uh, through 8. And the, the, kind of the way I phrase this one is this. If God is glorified in forgiving sinners, why should I worry about being obedient? It's the classic argument. Like, if God's going to forgive the sin, why not just go and commit more, right? It's that kind of classic, ridiculous argument that we, we often hear. And sometimes we think when we're in a bad place. And Paul says this. He says, if through my lie, he's, he's anticipating this objection, if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And then Paul says this. Why not do um, evil that good may come? And he says, as some people slanderously charge us with saying uh, that their condemnation is just. This is uh, a reckless, this is the evidence of a reckless relationship with sin um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, in a person's life. Uh, and what Paul's saying is that it's incompatible uh, with a healthy walk with the Lord. It's a, it's a, it's a, it is a cheap, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it, it, is a cheap understanding of God's grace. An understanding of God's grace that doesn't lead for a desire for deeper obedience is a flawed view of grace. Um, grace, when it's understood properly, as Romans 5 and 6 will lay out for us later, uh, leads to a deeper desire to please the Lord uh, and a deeper obedience. Romans 6, 1 and 2 says this. I'll give you a little, little uh, preview of, of where we're going in the future. He says, he's, he says, are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So he, what he's showing is the flawed um, understanding of God's grace and obedience. Um, when, whenever we are in this place where we're like, you know what, what's one more sin? It's not gonna hurt, right? God's gonna forgive them all anyway. We're kind of on that runaway train of disobedience in that dark spot in our souls. And he's saying that to be content and reckless living as a believer is a cheap understanding of grace that ultimately proves that we are still dead in sin and not alive in Christ. He says you can't be alive in Christ and alive in sin. You're either dead to sin and alive in Christ or alive in sin and, you know, de dead in Christ in effect. So, so what's the summary of all this, these objections that he's talking about, that he's anticipating? The summary is this, is that in our flesh, we will do absolutely anything that we can to avoid our responsibility for sin and thus our, our, our need for Jesus to save us. We will all be like I was in that, <laughs> that dentist chair saying, I don't really need a root canal when the tooth is dead as can be, right? That's how we are when we think about our Condition. We are trying to squirm away from responsibility. And, and when we do that, um, it, it really is all about us not trusting that the gospel is as good as it really is because we're afraid to face the reality of who we really are apart from God. Any solution to solving our sin problem that leads to self and not to Jesus, friends, is just slavery by another name. We don't want to believe that we are totally depraved people. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, Paul says. The, the bottom line is, is that we're totally depraved people in utter need of rescue that can only come through Jesus. So my question to you is, as we kind of land this unique kind of section of Romans 3 is, how are you tempted to run from owning your own sin? When you, when you squirm under 
the guilt and condemnation of your sin, and you, tr- you try to uh, shield yourself from ownership of what it is that you're into in that moment, um, wh- what is that like for you? Where do you run? And then the question is why? If we have all of the grace that we need to walk with God for all of eternity, why do we not take advantage of receiving it? The hardest thing for Christians to do is to receive the grace of God, which sounds ridiculous, right? The hardest thing for us to do is to actually receive the gift. It's this crazy, twisted thing that the enemy does. So how do you squirm under the weight of sin? Where are you running from ownership of sin in your life right now? Where are you blame-shifting a coworker, a parent, or a friend for something that really God is saying, you need to own this? And then the question is, what is it that we lose when we take ownership of that sin? Paul says, the only thing you lose is more of Jesus. (laughs) Why would we not want more of Christ? So let's continue with Paul in wrapping up his discovery of the mounting evidence against our humanity. Here's this kind of summary judgment that he gives uh, for us, and they're really three devastating effects of our radically corruptive nature, all right? So, so Paul is, as I said earlier, summarizing this section of Scripture from Romans 1.18 where it gets really heavy and really dark. And he's, 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 he's not let us off the hook, right? He's looked, at, he's looked at Jews, he's looked at Gentiles, he's looked at the different proclivities uh, toward our fallenness, and he's really turned over every stone for us. Uh, so much so that some of you might be tempted to tune me out today because I've been preaching, or we've been preaching the same thing, I mean, really for about five weeks now, right? You're kind of like, hey, I've been there, done that, got the t-shirt, let's move on to grace, right? That's kind of how we feel, but let's not circumvent what God wants to do through his word this morning, amen? Let's receive it as a gift. So what Paul's doing here is he's summarizing uh, and, and providing layer after layer of the mounting evidence against you and I so that we might actually believe that without Jesus, we're hopeless, that we're lost and we need to be found. I want to believe, friends, that I'm a good person, you know, that from time to time, like, I do sinful things, but I'm not a sinful person. I'm not a radically corrupt person. I want to believe that sometimes I just kind of slip up. Don't you want to believe the same thing about yourself, that, 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 that I'm really not that bad? And, and Paul, here's the thing, though, the word of God, like, the world will let you believe that. The word of God will not let you believe that. Listen to, we're going to look at Romans 3, which is kind of the textbook um, uh, passage for this doctrine of depravity that we talk about. But there are other places in God's word that talk about this. Let me just read a couple of really depressing verses for you real quick. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says this, the heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? Just follow your heart, the world says. Yikes, right? Genesis 6-5, this is right after sin has entered into the world. Cain and Abel have had their whole fiasco that's led to a murder. Noah is on the scene. He has these three sons and their families. And, and here's what the Lord sees in the world. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that people were just slipping up from time to time. 
No, he says, and that every intention, okay, so think about that word, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. That is a well-crafted verse that doesn't leave any room for us to squirm out of it, does it? Now, when we're in here and we think, man, I'm crushing it, I'm a pretty good person, I just slip up from time to time, it is an incompatible reality to this passage. Doctrinally, what he's laying out for us is this doctrine of original sin that leads to what we believe about our own depravity as, as image bearers of God. This idea that we are radically corrupt sinners. But the enemy has lulled most of the world to think uh, that our spiritual corruption is not fatal, and therefore Jesus is optional. Paul doesn't do the same thing. So let me just lay out kind of three things, uh, three, three pieces of really bad news uh, that lay the foundation for receiving really good news, okay? Uh, so, so here's the first thing he talks about. Basically, he's saying that we live with these imprisoned hearts um, in, in verses 9 and 10 in chapter 3. Do you ever wonder why you feel kind of trapped and burdened and just kind of numb and sorrowful sometimes? Like, really, nothing's really happened, but you just kind of wake up that way? Do you ever wonder um, why you feel so much guilt and shame, even when maybe no one else is seemingly involved in the situations? God's word is saying that this is the case because we are all born under sin under a sentence of death. We don't just slip up. It's more like we've never been able to get our heads above water is the better uh, metaphor. Um, Romans 3, 9 and 10 says this. Paul's kind of moving on in his argument here. What then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. God's people are no better off than the Gentiles, he says, other than the fact that they have the word of God. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, and, and guys, here's what this means. He's basically saying, like, <laughs> Christians and atheists is kind of what he's saying here. People that, that want to follow God and then people who don't give a rip about God, they're all in the same boat when they stand on their own is what he's saying. <clears throat> they're all under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. So what's it mean to be under sin? It's like if you imagine your passport and, you know, because the Bible talks a lot about citizenship, it means that our citizenship on our passport, it would say, like, in sin on it. Like, you, you would show up at the airport, you're really looking forward, going, uh, forward to going to kind of, kind of paradise, whatever that is for you, the Bahamas or Kentucky or whatever, and um, <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. And, and you're ready to go, and you, 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 you're, but your passport does not allow you to go there because you are under sin. It is our identity, meaning that we function and we behave out of that identity. And so, um, you know, this is why the phrase in Christ is Paul's favorite phrase to use when he talks about Christians. It's so pervasive in his writings. Apart from receiving God's grace, we're imprisoned to sin. And God's word, namely his law, is the evidence of our imprisonment. It convicts us and it brings us under the law. Listen to what the book of Galatians says about this. Galatians 3.22 says this. <clears throat> but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. So like when you read God's word and you find something that's in God's word that's not true in your life, what does it do? It 
convicts us, right? It, it brings us under the authority of a higher standard. Um, and this is the intention of God's word for our lives, that, that God's word would convict us and bring us, uh, bring us kind of, help us realize and become aware of, of, uh, <clears throat> of our problem, right? Of our sin problem. And so, um, and he says that this happens so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So people that don't think they're in prison won't seek freedom in Christ, is what he's saying here. So God's word does this amazing thing in our lives. And this is why we're not afraid of convicting passages like Romans chapter 3, because it confirms what we already know to be true in our conscience, that we're held captive. Uh, sin has crushed us like a, a, a cruel slave master, and, and it's made us believe that this is the only way that we can live. It imprisons us in guilt, and it leaves us uh, awaiting judgment. It's awful, right? And, and what does God do about this? He does everything for the captives, but nothing for those who don't believe that they're held captive by sin. How, how does he do everything for the captives? Well, he sends his son to be born under the crushing and cursing weight of the law on our behalf. How can Jesus save us from something that he has not experienced? This is why the book of Hebrews says that he's been tempted in every way, just like us, so he's able to be a faithful high priest. He, he, can, he sends his son to be born under this weight of, of, of the crushing weight of sin, and he sends him to be condemned for our sin. Yet many choose to carry the burden themselves. And this is what happens when we do not truly believe how lost we are. And this is why confession of sin and repentance is such a formative and important part of Christian community. Galatians 4 will go on to say this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, Born of woman, and why was he born of woman? Because we're born of woman. Born under the law, why was he born under the law? Because we're under the weight of the law. And why was he born of woman and born under the law? So that he can redeem those who are under the law. To be under the law means to be convicted um, and held responsible for our sin, and the word of God serves to show us that. So that, why? So that we can... Um, you know, just get through today? No, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Do you see how he goes from this um, kind of point-by-point um, exposure that we feel under God's word to the relationship that he desires to have? Because, friends, God has always desired a whole and full relationship with me and with you. And he does all of this work in Christ that we might be uh, a part of the redeemed family of God, adopted as sons and daughters, able to cry out, Abba, Father, because we are restored to our Father in heaven. He was born under the law. But if we don't feel the weight of that conviction, why will we ever seek this redemption that he promises to us? <clears throat> the second thing that we see is this. And oh, let me just say this. If you're someone who struggles... Um, if you're someone like me that struggles uh, with believing the freedom that is promised to us in Jesus, the key really is not buckling down 
into your total depravity more deeply? Like most of us, most of us know in our core that we're really rotten, right? The key is leaning into this promise that we are adopted as sons and daughters. And friends, this, this reality that God has redeemed us is what gives us strength to follow him and receive the gift more fully. That's the key for each and every one of us. So the second thing, second piece of this bad news that Paul sums up for us is, is this, is that our minds are dominated by self-concern. So as much as I want to believe that there are good people in this world, I cannot believe it because of God's word. See, there is a good God, and then there are people. And there are people that find their lives in that good God, but there are not good people. Which leads us to believe that the good that we see in this world is God alive in his people. Amen? That's the beauty of the gospel. Verse 11 says this. He says, no one understands, and he's, he's quoting Psalm 14, no one seeks for God. Think about that. Like, no one's born just searching for God. So what are we searching for? We're searching for self, right? We're seeking ourselves. He says, all have turned aside, and together they've become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. There's a lot of ultimatums in here, isn't there? Man. So what's Paul talking about? He's talking about how sin has not only dominated our behaviors, but how sin has dominated our motives and our minds. We are all seeking self, not God. In other words, without Jesus, we might look like we're really trying to do good in this world, but ultimately we're serving self. There's not one person who isn't seeking themselves in this world. And the Bible's saying that none of us are even born looking for God. As David would write in Psalm 51, and sin did our mothers conceive us before a breath, not in Jesus, but in sin. And our minds are bent on this continual self-promotion. And social media just kind of gives us a platform to do that more effectively, right? That's really what it is, right? Um, is, is, is to reveal our incessant need uh, to promote ourselves, to seek self-security and self-protection, not being hidden in the Lord. And so to be honest about who we are apart from Jesus is really to believe this about ourselves. In my story, it's pretty easy to see, um, but, but if you grew up in the church, maybe this is harder for you to see, and I want to be empathetic toward that um, because my children, yeah, I wasn't raised in the church, but my children are going to be raised in this church. They are being raised in the church See, I wasn't looking for Jesus when I became a Christian. So it's easy for me to see that God, God came down and snatched me out of the hands of sin, right? And some of you have that same story. Like, you weren't looking for God when God saved you. And it's, you look back and you're like, wow, if not for the grace of God, I could see myself doing all these kinds of things. I was looking out for myself and failing miserably when Jesus found me. Friends, how long will we go on judging one another on the various degrees of lostness that we experience? The various degrees of lostness that we perceive others to be in that are not like ours. Friends, it doesn't matter how lost we are, but that we're found by Jesus. Think about these examples in the scriptures. God, God found some of us lost like the prodigal son in college. That's some of your stories. Yeah, like you, 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 you ruined the father's uh, inheritance to you on reckless living, right? And you, were, you, just, you just ran with the devil. You just, you just went for it, right? And you found yourself lonely and in prison under the weight and guilt of your sin. God found some of us lost like Jonah, right? 
Knowing what God requires, yet running to Tarshish in the exact opposite direction of where he's called you to be. God will find some of us, like Zacchaeus, chasing the world's goods, yet being so unfulfilled and longing for more, just to see Jesus. And perhaps God may find some of us lost in the church, like the Apostle Paul. Friends, it would be foolish of us to believe that there are not people who are not followers of Jesus who come in this building every single week. And if that's you and and you're kind of becoming aware of that, I want to let you know that you're in a really great place. The history of God's people is a lot of people that were around a lot of religious things, even the word of God, who who were not believers. This is a safe place to be found by God. You know, doing all of the external religious things that make for a good spiritual resume, yet as lost as can be because you're not desperate for Jesus. Friends, it doesn't matter how lost or how we're lost uh, that, that we are, but that we're found. And to be found, we must see and come, to, and come to believe what it's like to be authentically lost without hope in this world unless Christ redeems us. The power of the gospel in this church is seeing authentically lost people become found because Jesus was looking for them even when they were hiding in their sin. And, and our confession of sin and our vulnerability with one another is, is often what paves the way for people to feel safe enough to be authentically lost in our midst. Amen? So just consider that as you share life with other people. You never know what God is doing through how you share your life with others. The last thing is this, the last part of the bad news, is this, all our ways are pervasively corrupt. Uh, The spiritual autopsies in on our lives, and there's nothing good in us. There's nothing alive within us. There's nothing that's even salvageable in us. And this is only bad news for us if we see ourselves standing alone, right? Paul's trying to just destroy every argument that you're able to save yourself. And I'm so thankful for that because I would hang on to any self-salvation project that he would let me hang on to. Romans 3, 13 through 17. I want you to listen as we read this passage on how he talks about the different uh, parts of the body and, and, and how uh, uh, corrupt they are. He says this, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. What's he talking about here? He's talking about our speech, how we relate to one another, how we communicate with one another. Um, Our words reveal how much we need to be saved. (laughs) Every time we open our mouths, we are, he said, it's like an open grave, right? We are devouring one another with our words. And apart from saving grace in Jesus, Paul is saying, it's like we dig a grave and we don't even bother to cover it up when we open our mouths. That there are bodies rotting and the stench of death is the aroma of our words. Think about how powerful words are in your own life. Think about the words that have hurt you uh, the most deeply. And on the other side of that, think about the most beautiful words that you've ever heard from someone. They're probably a follower of Jesus, right? Who shared something of encouragement to you, something from God's word of you, something from God's heart for you. 
what does my speech reveal about my nature is what Paul is asking us to consider. Um, And even as followers of Jesus, we still regularly deal with our old sinful self seeking to devour other followers of Jesus with our words. And this is why in our speech, we must be quick to listen, slow to speak, and quick to run to Jesus in repentance. I was reading this week something Francis Schaeffer wrote, and he said this. He says, if I won't say that I'm sorry to another person, then the world has the right to question whether or not I'm a Christian. (laughs) I was like, man, it's good. All right, so... Not only the mouth and the lips and the throat and the the tongue, he says the feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So he says sin doesn't stop with our words. It moves to our actual actions. We're after one another's blood. I was was having lunch with some new friends this week and we were talking about... um, you know, how, how things that are reported on the news don't really surprise us anymore. And really, it's because we know what's alive in us. <laughs> That's why I'm not so surprised at what happens in the world, because I know what could happen through me. I'll just give you a quick example. And again, I'm a pretty open book here. I was uh, in traffic this week. It's enough said, right? And I was on McGinnis Ferry Road, and the lane was closing in right here. And you know those guys, and please don't let you be in the room. Uh, you know those guys that come in and they try to to merge in in front of you really, really quick. Well, I, I was just like, I just kind of had enough. I'd been sitting in traffic that long. This guy tries to cut in front of me. Guys, I don't hit the brakes. I hit the gas. I was willing to sideswipe this guy. That's alive in me. Maybe it's alive in you or maybe you're lying. I don't know, but... Proverbs 16.25 says, there is a way that seems right to man. The way that seemed right to man on McGinnis Ferry Road was hit the gas. But in its end, it leads to death. And that switch inside of you and inside of me, if not for the grace of God, can flip in an instant, can it? I've always said we're only one bad decision away from prison. You know that, right? Each and every one of us are. And, and Paul pulls no punches when he, when he shares this with us. There is no part of our humanity that sin has not ruined. Every single part of our human constitution, our image has been devastated by sin. And the world just wants us to chalk it up to having a bad day. I was just in a spot. He just slipped up. We're corrupt, friends. We're utterly ruined and hopeless unless Jesus comes to lift this weight off of us. Paul sums it up with this right here. Last part of the bad news. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, every mouth that claims it can be righteous on its own, he's saying. And the whole world may be accountable to God. For by the works of law of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. There's nothing in the world that we can do to get ourselves out from under this weight of sin. Everywhere we turn, All we do is increase the burden. We increase the debt. And those friends who have the courage to find the beauty of admitting and believing how authentically lost that we actually are without Jesus saving us are invited into this beauty of living these found out lives in the gospel. Because we have this advocate, right, that that redeems us from all of our sinfulness And may we not be ashamed of the goodness of his free gift toward us. 
by, by couching our lives in our own works. And let me close by reading kind of the bookends of this section of Scripture as we prepare next week to talk about the beauty of the gospel. Here's the amazing news of the gospel for people who are courageous enough to confess how authentically lost they are without him. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Friends, that is our hope. That is our song. And that means that it doesn't matter what the law reveals about us. It doesn't matter how deeply God's word convicts and exposes our life because Jesus has come near to sinners and he redeems us from our, our corruption by making us alive by faith, not in and of ourselves, but by this gift. We don't have to look to ourselves anymore, friends. May we choose to be authentically lost people who have been radically rescued by the fierce and eternal love of our amazing Savior, Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, uh, we thank you that when we were not looking for you, you found us. God, I'm thankful that, um, that in your church um, there is an expectation that we come face to face with our corrupt nature, Lord, and that our sin is not a problem for you. I want to pray, Lord, for those in the room today that really have a hard time hearing that. Um, and maybe they grew up in the church, um, and maybe, maybe they struggle with kind of that elder brother mentality in the, in the story of the prodigal son, Lord, where, where it's really hard to see their brokenness, Lord. That can be some of the most dangerous uh, places uh, for, for believers to be whenever we're, everything looks good on the outside. And so, Father, I pray that you would just, as, as, as a people of God here at New City, give us the courage uh, to be found out, to be lost in our sin and radically saved by you. And so, Father, as we come to this table, um, we're asking you to search us and know us, to reveal the ways in us that are not in line with the way of Jesus. And, Father, the enemy hunts us, and he desires to condemn us with that confession, and you have sent your son to deliver us. So Father, we pray that you'd be with us in this moment. It's in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God, together proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.